Today we're speaking with Julia Vitarello. She's the founder and CEO of Mila's Miracle Foundation. Welcome to our very first podcast, Julia. Um, welcome to our brand new studio. What do you think? Thank you so much for having me. I feel really honored to be the very first person to be interviewed here at Charles Rivers podcast studio. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're very excited to have you. I know you came quite a distance um, and we happened to catch you while you're in Boston. So uh, I, I know you. your home is in Colorado and you find yourself in Boston quite a bit. And, and I'm sure we'll get into that today as we talk some more about uh, your work and, and your journey. Really excited to get into your story. Um, to me, it's an amazing um, journey that you've been on and uh, very inspiring for all of us. Why don't we start with your family? Can you share a little bit about your family and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, uh, my daughter Mila is eight years old um, and the reason we're here today talking, um, she has a rare disease called Batten disease. Um, and we can talk about her more as we discuss. Um, I actually have a son as well, whose name is Aslan, and he's five years old. And we live in Boulder, Colorado, and we spend quite a lot of time in Boston, as you mentioned, um, for Mila's genetic treatment. So that's why I'm here right now, um, spending the week here with Mila in and out of Boston Children's Hospital. Um, Boston's kind of become our second home in the last year and a half. Wonderful. So, yeah, we're happy to be here. Well, we love the East Coast here, but there's nothing like Boulder. So um, it sounds like you get a little bit of the best of both worlds. Mila has been um, somebody that's touched many of the people's lives here at Charles River. And um, telling her story and your story as well is something that we think is, is not only important, but um, something that people need to hear. So could you uh, bring us back to when you started noticing that something wasn't quite right with Mila? Yeah, um, you know, Mila, when she was born, she was completely healthy and kind of your average kid. Um, we didn't have any red flags come up at any of her pediatrician appointments when she was young. She was really honestly like the center of attention at every little baby family gathering. She was incredibly outgoing and very talkative, very active, always climbing a wall or, you know, jumping from a table to a chair. She was hysterically laughing in the middle of a circle of children and their parents. Um, she really just all eyes were on Mila, kind of everywhere we went. And she was developing completely normally. She loved singing. She loved um, counting and um, you know, at the top of her lungs and <laughs> um, climbing up the stairs and sliding down on her butt. You know, she she was just, you know, any other kid. And um, and then suddenly I started noticing around three years old um, that she uh, her, her foot was interned and we had done a lot of hiking in Colorado. So we had been hiking with her since she was tiny, since she was like a year and a half, two years old. Um, she would, you know, hike in various national parks in Colorado and in Utah and, you know, for hours on end, even in the snow. So it was pretty obvious that something was um, changing in her gait and it was a little wobbly, but we took her to kind of orthopedic doctors and they said, this can happen and she'll grow out of it. And then another neurological symptom came on where she started stuttering, but it didn't sound like normal stuttering. And the stuttering therapist was a little confused. Um, and she was getting stuck on phrases and words. Um, she couldn't initiate. Um, and once she did, then she would start going and then get stuck again. Um, nothing was really kind of fitting the mold. But once again, 
statistics showed that 25% of children stutter and then it, they outgrow it. So we were kind of told the same thing, like it would resolve itself. Um, and and then another neurological, you know, condition, but, you know, only in retrospect, I say neurological condition because at the time it just seemed like it's just something that happens with kids. And she didn't seem to be able to see as well. Um, and I saw her face pushed down against books when I would pick her up at her little preschool. Um, and I also noticed that a lot of kind of chaos was going on at school and she used to be part of that chaos and, you know, running around right before school pickup and and suddenly she was quiet in the corner with her face pushed against a book and the teacher said, oh, she just needs a little time to um, kind of calm down. And I just thought, you know, my daughter's so outgoing and so like running around screaming, why is she quiet in the corner now and why is she pushing her face against this book? Um, and I would do these tests where um, I would do these tests where I would point to something in the corner of her book. It was a butterfly. And I would say, Mila, look at this. What is this? And she would say, a butterfly. And then the next day I would do it again. And she would just be totally quiet, like as if she had no idea what I was pointing to. So it was really inconsistent. Wow. Um, and as time went on between three years old, probably till about five, it really wasn't very noticeable. These problems weren't noticeable by other people besides me or maybe some therapists, you know, other families and parents and thought, you know, Mila was still super social and she was learning to ride a bike and she was learning to cut with scissors and draw and doing all the normal things. And then suddenly around kind of five years old, that all plateaued um, and actually started getting a little bit worse. And so people started using the term um, delayed and I thought that doesn't make sense she's not delayed she has already reached those peaks this and now she's going down um she was misdiagnosed not fully diagnosed but she definitely the word autism came up a few times and because it looked like she was uh putting her head down into toys and really getting concentrated so all these things kind of ended up being our diagnostic journey which was horrible and long and I felt like I was crazy and eventually at six years old uh, between five and six things got much worse and clearly she was falling over all the time she was covered in bruises um, you know she could barely get sentences out because they were so broken and i was taking videos of her and and she couldn't get her thought out um, and vision was to the point where i looked down at our books one day and saw that all the book bindings were broken because she was walking across all of her books on the floor and just breaking pages off of books and i was taping them all back together and i just thought something is wrong you know and i had no idea how wrong um and at her sixth birthday is when i just decided i can't drag her around to any more doctors with my little piece of paper that says neurological symptoms on it um, with a question mark. No one was getting it. And I just drove her into the ER because I had no other choice. And I brought her to Denver Children's Hospital. And that's kind of where the next chapter began. That must have been um, such a difficult time. I can't imagine the, the going back and forth and always kind of questioning yourself and getting those reassurances, but knowing that in your heart there was something more that wasn't coming to light um tell us about when you finally got the diagnosis and what that was like and yeah when i entered the hospital that night in the end of november of 2016 mila had just turned six years old we had just had our birthday party um my anxiety level was very high um 
I had actually gone on a run the week before and been bitten by a dog for the first time. And the reason I bring this up is because everyone said, oh my gosh, like you were just bitten by this huge dog. And I had no reaction to it. And looking back, I realized I was numb to it. Mm-hmm. I didn't notice it. I barely even washed my leg off. Um, I, my mind was somewhere else. And this was just a few weeks before I brought her into the hospital. And we ended up spending a week there. Um, it was very obvious within the first two minutes of being in the, in the emergency room that they turned the lights off and put a flashlight in Mila's eyes. And for the first time ever, I saw that she didn't respond. Um, and I. I can't even express that feeling. I knew that she had had vision problems. I thought maybe she needed glasses. Um, I did not think that she was not seeing the flashlight. Um, and then her eyes rolled back and someone mentioned in the room, like, you know, one of the doctors said, oh, I wonder if that was a seizure. And I had never, I didn't even know what a seizure was. No one had told me about this. Suddenly my daughter that was having, you know, tripping and looking at book problems suddenly I was being told that she was blind and that she was maybe having seizures and I could see all the red flags going up. And that week was got harder and harder with many, many doctors in our room. And I mean, I didn't sleep. I cried all the time, but I was also trying to rally for Mila and make her feel comfortable. Um, And then by the end of the week, um, all of the tests had come back and shown that it was likely one of two different diseases, um, but they had to run a genetic panel and you know before leaving the hospital they sat around us and said you know these are the two options and they're both not looking very good and they looked very serious there were no smiles there was no hope i said there has to be something (laughs) there has to be someone out there doing something for these diseases and just the answer was no and i said there's not a pill there's not a treatment there's not something we can do to try and just no there's just nothing at all no answer, just quiet. Like, there's nothing you can do. And that feeling um, was something I really don't know how to explain. Um, being told that your daughter's probably not going to make it. I didn't really know what it was bad in disease at the time. It took one week to get those results. And when it did come back, I have to be honest, like, my initial reaction was incredible relief. Like, I had just been on a three-year journey of trying to figure out what was going on with my daughter and just nothing was coming up and no one knew what was wrong with her. So to have an answer felt like an adrenaline rush. So exciting, you know, and then within just hours maybe of Googling and reading about Batten disease, um, I just kept seeing words like fatal and, you know, compared it to ALS and Parkinson's and, you know, Huntington's. And I just thought, oh my gosh. And then it just said, there are no treatments and we barely understand this disease at all. And that speaks to the the world of rare disease and not, there's no cure, there's no treatment. There's not even a lot of knowledge about that. And so um, I'm sure that the the world of rare disease is something you weren't familiar with before. And um, uh, I know from my perspective being here at Charles River, sometimes there's a patient population of several, not even hundreds or thousands. Um, What was that rare disease diagnosis like and and what did that do um, for you as part of, um, you know, trying to find answers and um, taking the next steps to try to 
help Mila because just by a few conversations I've had with you, you don't seem like somebody that's going to get put off by um, that type of discouraging news. Yeah. I mean, at first, I, I, I remember coming across the word rare disease and I um, remember thinking back at the many times that doctors would look at Mila and say, oh, you know, she'll grow out of this. I mean, there's always a really rare chance that she has a neurological condition, but that's so rare that we're going to assume that it's not that. And that happened numerous times along the way with ophthalmologists and orthopedic doctors and, you know, neurologists. It was, it came up many times. And so I I suddenly realized that I was on the other side and that Mila was that really rare case that had been overlooked. And... I kind of dove into it and I started learning about other rare diseases, names I had never heard of before. And I found foundations and I just reached out to everyone that I knew and said, do you know anyone in this rare disease world? And suddenly all these people stood up and said, oh, well, I have a friend of a friend or a cousin or a sister, you know, that has this disease. Do you want to talk to them? And you know, I'll never forget that one of my most powerful conversations was with um, uh, the father of a son um, who he had just lost to progeria. And um, he runs um, a progeria foundation. And I saw how successful they were at raising money and putting it towards science. And I talked with him and he was just incredibly helpful and humble. Um, and he just lost his son. And I had went gone on the internet and watched his TED talk, his son's TED talk right before he passed away. And it left such a huge impression on me um, that this kid knew that he probably wasn't going to make it. And he was aspiring to be, you know, this incredible person in his life. And despite everything he was fighting and, you know, it was really um, I felt like I suddenly entered this world of this incredible sadness, but a real desire to fight against that and to say, you know, there's got to be something I can do in this world that can help Mila, but that can help other people. So the more foundations I spoke with, the more I learned about other rare diseases, um, the more I wanted to fight. Every time a rare disease came up, I looked it up, I read about it, I learned about it. um, And I just thought, you know what, I've got to be able to do something here. And so I didn't give up and I just started speaking to scientists. So anytime a scientist's name came up, in, a, in an article about Batten disease or about other neurogen, neurodegenerative diseases or lysosomal storage diseases, which Batten is is one of them, um, I would find a scientist name that looked interesting. I'd reach out to them and just keep bothering them until I got on the phone mm-hmm. or exchanged emails. And um, a lot of them were just learning. They were just learning like the the backdrop of rare disease and what was happening. And I could see that a lot of work had been put in over the years to even be able to figure out what these diseases were and what caused them. But we weren't at the point yet where they were translating that into um, treatments. Um, And I needed to see that translated. And so um, I tried to learn and I saw there was these few foundations out there that were really trying to push and turn that work into treatments and there were not many of them there was almost nothing going on at the end of 2016 in terms of stopping a genetic disease but i heard just enough scientists tell me that they felt like they could see it on the horizon we weren't there yet we weren't even close but um it was possible whereas like yesterday it wasn't possible so for me that was all i needed to hear and i started a foundation um i knew i had to raise a few million dollars and i just kind of i started incredible. I definitely want to get some more into that, but um, 
I would love to hear a little bit about how Dr. Timothy Yu came into the picture from Boston Children's Hospital. How did that come to be? Um, yeah, so I, I originally started working in my foundation on a traditional gene therapy, nothing to do with Boston Children's, um, working with um, Dr. Stephen Gray, um, who's just a very renowned gene therapist, and luckily um, he was willing to take on my case. So I started down that path and started signing contracts and paying for the preclinical work to get this new gene therapy going for Mila's type of Batten disease for CLN7. Um, and then along the way, um, not too soon after I contacted him, I, in parallel, was looking for a missing mutation of Mila's. So Mila needed two mutations, one for myself, one from Alec, in order to um, have Batten disease. It's autosomal recessive. And they couldn't find one of the mutations. They could only find one. And most people just said, you know, don't worry about it. It's clearly that she clearly has this disease. Don't go down this rabbit hole. I don't think you're going to figure it out. There's many, many children out there that have, um, you know, a missing mutation, and we just we just can't find them right now. One day we'll be able to. Um, but I thought number one is I can't test my son, <laughs> and mm, I need right. to be able to test him. And he was at the age where Mila was completely advanced and normal. He was only you know two and a half years old, mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't risk testing him for the one mutation and seeing that that came back as positive and not knowing. Um, so that was my real driver. And my second driver was that I was about to try to raise $4 million to start a gene therapy. And the one thing you need to know with gene therapy is what the gene is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you get the wrong gene, you're in trouble. So I wanted a full confirmation that uh, this was in fact the right gene. So I went down this rabbit hole and what I found was that there was the most cutting edge type of um, genetic testing was um, whole genome sequencing. And I learned that pretty quickly and that there weren't that many labs at the time that were doing that. Um, I also learned that even the ones that were doing it might not, very likely might not be able to find Mila's missing mutation. It could be just so complicated that they couldn't find it. So I honed in on one lab in particular that kept coming up at Harvard. I went on Facebook and I grew up in the East Coast. So I figured, gosh, I've got to be able to have some connection here that's going to help me because the timeline was five months. So I could get in, but five months was going to be too long for Mila and to wait for Aslan. Um, and so I wrote a post and it said, you know, I desperately need help getting some sort of expedited timeline here on finding my daughter's missing mutation. And that same day, what I didn't know was that my college best friend from Amherst College, who's a physician in the Boston area, reposted that um, to a group of physician moms around the country on Facebook, which is apparently a very large, um, large uh, Facebook group. That ended up on Dr. Timothy Yu's wife's desk, who's also a physician in Boston. So stars somehow aligned there. And the next day, I got an email saying, Dr. Timothy Yu wants to speak with you. He heard your story. He has a lab at Boston Children's Hospital that um, focuses on difficult to find mutations. And within another day, I was already speaking with him. And suddenly that took us um, on, on a totally different path that I had expected. I just got chills hearing that. That's um, incredible how those pieces came together. Um, and uh, connected you with Dr. Yu. And now you're facing this race against time. You mentioned the, the time period being a really um, important um, piece of this puzzle. 
and um, and now you have somebody that can help. Um, tell us about that process. How did you um, move that forward? Yeah, I think um, Dr. Yu started by simply saying that he wanted to help find this missing mutation. Um, and he worked day, night, weekends with his um, team in his lab to try to find this. And that was really the, the ultimate goal. Once they did find that, which was amazing that they even found it, um, and they really went well beyond what they needed to in order to find that, they called us back you know, a month or so later and said, you know, we found this mutation and it's this very strange retrotransposin. I remember thinking, what is that word? And looking it up. And the great news is, is that your son doesn't have Batten disease. He's not even a oh carrier. And so he, I just thought in that moment in time that my son didn't carry either of um, the mutations and that later in his life and down his family tree, Batten disease would not be part of his life. Um, it seemed like a very big mix of incredible, incredible happiness and incredible sadness for the comparison with Mila, who got both of the bad genes, both of the bad uh, mutations. And um, then he went on and he paused and he said, um, and I have, I have an idea of how I might be able to, to help address Mila's disease and maybe help her. And I just was completely caught off guard. I mean, I thought this person had already gone beyond the call of duty of even trying to help find on a research basis, you know, find a, a missing mutation, telling me my son's going to be okay. Now he's actually giving me hope that there might actually be another path towards a treatment for her. At that time, it was still very early. And he said, look, you keep working on your gene therapy, um, but we're going to work on this, you know, in parallel and let's see what we can do. And, you know, a, a number of months later, uh, Dr. Yu and his team had shown uh, that this antisense oligonucleotide or ASO that he had imagined was actually um, really restoring function to Mila's cells, which was something that I don't even know if they actually expected that to happen, but they had hoped for. Um, and I think that the interesting, once again, kind of stars aligning um, was that one week after Mila was diagnosed in December of 2016, an incredible, incredible drug Spinraza or Nusinersen came out um, and was approved by the FDA for another terrible disease called spinal muscular atrophy. And so neurologists and scientists had, geneticists, you know, had this drug on their mind because it was stopping an incredibly horrible disease where children are, you know, in tiny wheelchairs by their one year, you know, by the time they're one years old and on respirators and and they're not alive after two years old. And now they're running around and playing and <clears throat> living normal lives. So, you know, this was on people's mind. And at the exact same t time, Dr. Yu and his team um, were thinking, wow, what an amazing drug. And then Mila fell on their lap. And when she fell on their lap, suddenly all of the boxes started to get checked off in terms of similarities with this drug and with this type of mutation. And they thought, wow, you know, what if we could do the same thing for Mila, but just for Mila? And so many people, I think, came to them and said, that's nuts. <laughs> How could you do something like that for one child? And they kept saying, why not? And that's really what kind of propelled what then ended up being um, you know, less than a year timeline from figuring this out. I think it was around nine months from kind of figuring out what Mila's mutation was and imagining this path of a Spinraza-like drug for Mila 
all the way till her treatment, you know, nine months later. And um, that was one of the fastest things anyone has ever seen happen. That's, um, that's what I think is, um, from my perspective, being in this industry, one of the most amazing um, aspects of this journey. I've never heard anything like this. So what, what is involved in that from going from the lab where you're seeing some potentially good outcomes to actually getting to a treatment for Mila? I think they started by um, asking for Mila's cells, and so her skin cells, and they grew those skin cells. And then in parallel, they started designing um, oligos, ASOs, that they believed could help Mila. And, you know, they started applying these uh, ASOs that they tried to Mila's cells. So they were patient-derived cells. They, you know, they were really Mila cells growing that had band disease. And then they were applying this drug to see whether or not it could act in some sense like a Band-Aid um, and kind of cover up this mutation that they learned that I had passed on to Mila. Um, they, they worked as quickly as they possibly could. They knew that Mila's timeline was uh, extremely rapid. Mila has a very progressive um, rapidly, you know, degenerating disease. And she was losing during this period of time, she had lost her vision at diagnosis at six years old, between six and seven years old, that year when Dr. Yu and his team were working, she had lost her ability to talk. She was down to saying mommy. And I remember her saying mommy and, uh, you know, in bed one night and thinking, oh my gosh, she might never say this again. And she didn't. And I mean, for me, that was just one of the most, you know, horrible things to not have my daughter be able to say mommy again and not be able to see me. Um, yeah. You know, and, and while this was happening, there was all this hope, you know, so it was this comparison of incredible fight and excitement and hope with like reality that Mila was losing everything. She couldn't eat her food that I was cutting up and I had to start getting a hand blender and pureeing it. And she started choking on that and we had to put in a G-tube to help give her water and medicines and eventually food. Um, and at the same time, you know, there was more and more excitement building around this ASO and that we were on such a, a, a fast timeline. So what happened was that Dr. Yu and his team ended up as quickly as possible showing that there was one ASO in particular that was really restoring function to Mila cells and they had it produced and they had it tested in animals and they worked with the FDA who was incredibly um, helpful. You know, they were not a barrier. They were actually really a team member in this, which was something that I didn't know much about the FDA. And I just assumed that they were kind of a gatekeeper, you know, and that they were going to do everything possible to make sure Mila, you know, wasn't going to get this drug unless it was perfect, you know. But instead, they realized that the risk of not treating Mila was very black and white. She was going to lose all of her abilities and die. Mm -hmm. at a very young age and the risk of treating her was that this was a new drug and this had never been done before this was the first time in the world where an entirely new drug was customized to one patient and was being given to her um, after testing for sure and animals etc to the point where it was absolutely everyone felt it was very safe but it was still new um, and they really everyone kind of went out on a limb here for mila and raced um and I think in even the testing of the animals, which was fundamental to to Mila getting access to her drug, you know, Charles River 
I mean, their teams in various cities worked day and night. They worked weekends. This happened to fall right around the Christmas holiday. They were, you know, working over the holidays. And and it was just incredible because I was sitting there watching Mila getting worse and worse. The drug was made. Um, and And having people, so many people, stand up and team up and send me emails and say, we're all rooting for Mila, you know, various companies, including Charles River you know, saying we're all here with you and we're racing with you and we're going to make this happen. And the FDA was racing and everyone was racing. After this short break, Julia tells us about her experience working with the FDA. If you're enjoying this story and want a deeper dive into the science, please visit our sister podcast, Sounds of Science, at eureka.seariver.com slash podcast. Want even more science stories? Head over to eureka.seariver.com to listen to Sounds of Science. Join me, Mary Parker, as I interview drug discovery researchers, thought leaders on trending industry topics, and patients with a personal stake in the newest pharma research. I cover topics from horseshoe crab evolution to cancer treatment, with guests who bring a big picture perspective to science stories. Tune in every month for Sounds of Science at eureka.seariver.com. We got to the point where it was January and Dr. Yu said, you know, I think it's time to come. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like, are we really here? And at that same time, Mila was losing so much. So she had just gone off kind of a cliff typical of baton disease and things had gotten a lot worse. Her seizures had spiked. She was slumping. She was choking all the time when she ate. And it was just happening exactly at the same time as when all of this was coming together. So we got on a plane and um, FlexJet, you know, a private jet company heard our story and offered their, their private jet for us because it was horrendous flu that year. And that was so kind of them. And just everyone was stepping up. You know, at the same time, I was trying to raise a massive amount of money um, to, to, to pay for all of this. And, and uh, you know, people from all over the world, I think 6,000 people from the world, you know, ended up donating to us. We raised almost $3 million in one year. We were also supporting a gene therapy as well, um, which eventually I handed most of the reins over to another family um, who was working that because I couldn't take mm-hmm. on both. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just this incredible race to keep Mila active, keep her healthy, have her sleep well, have her walk. And then at the same time, at night, I would try to raise the money mm-hmm. and then work with Dr. Yu to explain to his team and the FDA that we had no time left. Um, and just all the teams of people like Charles River and the companies that um, that produce the drug and the labs involved, there was just so many players and they all stepped up beyond belief at holiday time. And suddenly, you know, before I knew it, we were in Boston in January of 2017, 18, January of 2018. Um, and there was about to be a government shutdown. Oh and two hours before the government shut down, the FDA issued the letter wow. giving the green light. And I, to this day, cannot tell you how grateful I am to them because they knew that we were racing. And I know that they went out of their way to make sure that they gave us that approval before the government shut down. And, you know, immediately within days, Mila was receiving her first injection to her brain. Incredible. So all you've so many things have come together to put all this work together. You're at this moment now 
What was that moment like for you? All, everything, your whole heart that you'd poured into this, the hours, um, and the fact that you knew Mila needed it so desperately. What was that moment like? And Yeah, I, re I remember when Mila, they took Mila back at Boston Children's. I had just raced every day and every night for a year. And I never had any time to actually sit down and think about this because most importantly is I had to raise the money to make this happen, which meant telling her story and you know talking to media and press and taking photos of her and keeping the world updated on her. And you know, it was taking everything out of me while also taking care of Mila and my son. Um, I was exhausted. Um, and when they took her back, I walked through the back hallways of the old Boston Children's buildings with their big neon lights. Um, and I remember what those hallways looked like because I walked through them for a few hours. Um, and I sat there at some point and I stopped and put my hands up in the air. Like, I don't know why I just put them up in the air. And I thought, oh my gosh, my daughter has, was given a 0% chance. No child has ever lived with bad disease. And suddenly, here I am and Mila is this child that's being given a drug where they actually have seen that it's restored function to her cells in the lab you know and I knew that Mila was quite progressed at that point and that it was still kind of a long shot um a lot of dominoes had already fallen for Mila unfortunately but I also felt like you know what this is incredible she's receiving a drug which is traveling up her spinal fluid into her brain and her neurons are absorbing this as we you know as i as i was thinking this and it's potentially correcting you know what causes bad disease in her and i just thought how is this possible i can't even wrap my head around the concept of this drug and it was named milicin and you know it was a drug made for mila so it was it seemed like a enormous jump from feeling the incredible desperation and no hope at all and i'd really protected my emotions through this year mm -hmm. because even though it was building up i had to kind of say you know what this might not happen and so when this did happen i allowed myself to think wow you know what mila actually might actually really have a possibility at living longer or maybe living forever <laughs> forever seemed like a big word for me but you know maybe she could have an extended life um, and do some of the things I thought she might never be able to do. But Well, how long has it been since that initial dosage and how is she doing now? So that initial dose was a year and a half ago, almost exactly okay. to the day. Um, and it's been a roller coaster. Uh, the first year, Mila really stabilized uh, and she actually improved in many different ways her seizures were probably the most drastic. Uh, they had been up to 30 a day and just really kind of violent um, laughing, so kind of cute, <laughs> a type of gelastic seizure, which is a little bit rare. And I would have to hold her down with all my force at the dinner table or wherever she was sitting and her arms and legs kind of were flailing and smashing against me and against the table and against her brother. And it just was getting really out of control. And within a month or so, a month or two after starting the treatment, Mila's seizures were down to just a handful and you wouldn't even notice them. She was laughing for a few seconds, turn her head sideways, and then it'd be done. There were a few days during that year where she actually got down to zero seizures. So she had no seizures an entire day. Um, the kind of intensity of those seizures, we never saw those flailing arms ever again. 
We never saw smashing legs. We never saw bodies jerking and moving. Um, they were 10 times less severe and there were hardly any of them. I mean, they didn't affect our life anymore. Um, we noticed her st sitting up really tall. She could sit by herself. She wasn't slumping anymore. Um, we had started feeding her food through her G-tube right before the treatment because she was choking so much on her food and that went away. So we fed everything to her by mouth and still to this day, we give her all her food by mouth. So these were some subtle but really important improvements in Mila's life and our life. Uh, she started lifting her feet and walking up the stairs with full support from behind, but she could lift her feet up alternating all the way up to the top of the stairs. Um, after the first year, so this year, 2019, there have been, uh, you know, some of her symptoms seem to be stable, some of them seem to improve, and other ones don't seem to be doing as well. And as a mom, watching Mila over the last eight years of her life, you know, excelling for the first five or six and then declining and then kind of plateauing with this, with this treatment, I think that a lot of dominoes fell um, before Mila's treatment. And like I mentioned earlier, I kind of always knew that this was a long shot. I was so excited to have this chance. I worked so hard for it together with Dr. Yu. But Mila's disease is very complicated. It's very fast moving. Um, it affects every neuron, every cell in the body. Um, and we you know, may have stabilized this disease, but it may not have stabilized every single aspect because so many dominoes had already fallen. So I try really hard every day to keep one foot on the side of hope and one foot on the side of reality. And I've done that for the last few years. I try to do that very much right now because Mila's not in the place that I would hope she would be, but I'm still impressed every day by the fact that she still smiles and laughs and that her hands instead of being clenched are now open and she can feel things. She's still eating by mouth, but other things, you know, it's harder for her to walk and um, it, you know, she's not as responsive as often. And that's really hard for me. Um, I did tell myself going into this um, the day before Mila started being treated. I went on a run in Boston. It was freezing. Oh my gosh, so cold. And I looked up to the freezing winter sky and just told myself that I didn't know what was going to happen with Mila, but I knew that this entire fight for Mila and her fight being so strong to push through all of this was going to be for something bigger. Very hard to say when you're watching your daughter, you know, degenerate but um i just told myself there's just too many people out there that are dealing with what i'm dealing with and they're behind closed doors and you don't know they exist but there are millions of them in the u.s alone and even more around the world and i just felt like this effort has to be for something bigger and what we learned from mila even though she's the first and she started her treatment a bit late that it's going to help science and medicine and it's going to help pave a new path and other people like me are going to have access to this treatment earlier before their symptoms take over. And I, I think, I know I want to cover more about that in our next podcast about how, the work that you and Dr. Yu and others are doing to bring the treatment forward to other kids. Um, is there anything um, more about this part of the story that you you think it's important for us to touch on or to set the stage for the next conversation with Dr. Yu? 
You know, I, I think that a lot of eyes are on Mila in science, medicine, even just kind of the general community that's been supporting Mila along the way around the world. And it's always hard for me because this fight has given so much hope to Mila and in turn it's giving so much hope to so many others. But I try to also paint a realistic picture that this might not be in time for Mila. And that doesn't mean that this pathway is not a valid one for future children across many diseases. I really think it is, and many, many others believe it is as well. And I feel grateful that um, everything we've gone through and our fight is really making a big difference. I can see the ripple effect that it's having already. And I can see that it's changing the path of, you know, patient customized genetic treatments. Um, we're working with the FDA. You know, we're working with other patient organizations, with other hospitals. Like, I really see this future, and I see the huge role that Mila's treatment has played. And I think that Mila's story is is not over. It's she, I still have a lot of hope for Mila, and she has many great moments and great days. Um, but no matter what happens, this is the story of a first, and it's the story of um, what it entails to be a first and how bold as a scientist you know and physician doctor you had to be to step into this unknown territory and as a family um and as a child mila you know the unknown of we don't know what's happening right now with her it's totally unknown we don't know what the best dose is to give her and how often to give her a dose because there's no reference point so the concept of being the first is um isn't about a success story. You know, it's not like I lost a limb and it grew back. Mm-hmm. It's it's really about how amazing, good and bad, it is to be the first and how important it is to be the first to break the ice to allow for um, a new treatment path that could help many, many, many more Milas that are going to be born and diagnosed and go through the same pain that I went through um, and giving them hope. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and for being our first. Um, It was a pleasure to speak to you, and I look forward to our next episode. Thank you, Gina. I really appreciate you letting me tell Mila's story. Gina, that was an incredible story. I really love the collaboration between Dr. Yu, the family, and the FDA, but I especially love the enthusiasm Dr. Yu's team had regarding personalized medicine. When others said, how can they do something like that for one child? Their response was, why not? I agree, Chris. That was a really fascinating moment for me as well. I don't think I fully realized the um, almost flexibility that happened and potentially could continue to happen, especially in this world of evolving personalized medicine as it tries to face off the challenges with rare disease. I think what's going to come next is going to be even more interesting. Uh, We're going to speak directly with Dr. Yu and dig in a little bit more on this story, see how it all came to be and how this uh, project and future projects are taking shape. And uh, we'll learn more about how his uh, search for treatments for these rare diseases is really driving his involvement in the future of personalized medicine. That's great, Gina. I can't wait. Do you have a suggestion, episode idea, or a great story to tell? 
contact us at vitalscience at crl.com. Please subscribe and download this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Sounds of Science, focusing on innovation and trends in the life science industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vital Science. I'm Gina Mullane. And I'm Chris Garcia. See you next time.